Is that what I'm saying? Rough Trade Radio. 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 Hello and welcome to a Rough Trade Radio special with Lavinia Greenlaw. Lavinia Greenlaw is an award-winning poet and novelist published by Faber and Faber. This year is the 10th anniversary of her fantastic book, The Importance of Music to Girls. Greenlaw's unflinching eye and spare, sophisticated prose render a rare and quite beautiful book, said The Observer when they made it one of their books of the year. Yesterday, on International Women's Day, we asked Lavinia if she would read from her book to celebrate the occasion, so we asked her if she would come back in and join us for a podcast. Welcome, Lavinia. Hello. Um, before I ask you some questions, do you want to give us a brief description of your book, The Importance of Music to Girls? I always found it really difficult to write about music and I knew for years the sort of book I didn't want to write, you know, I didn't have a sort of big music story to tell. So I started thinking about when I was a child dancing on my father's shoes, circle games we played at school, uh, learning to play the piano and it became a book of very short, almost essays, which focus on a moment in my life to do with music and talk about the role music plays really in growing up in leading us into trouble and actually in saving us and helping us change. Okay, great. Do you, do you think you could maybe read a short passage from the book to uh, give us a taster of it? Sure. The greatest act of love was to make a tape for someone. It was the only way we could share music and it was also a way of advertising yourself. Selection, order, the lettering you used for the track list, how much technical detail you went into whether or not you added artwork or offered only artwork and no track list at all. These choices were as codified as a Victorian bouquet. We also made tapes from each other's records because records were expensive. What music we owned was limited by what we could find and what we could afford. I saved up for records, read about them, dreamt about them, waited for them to come out. When I really wanted an album or single, I wanted it properly which meant on vinyl and in a sleeve. An LP was something of substance and vision. It was not a pocket-sized rectangle containing a small brown coil wrapped in shrunken graphics. We lived in each other's bedrooms because it was there we could play music. We went to what gigs we could and watched television and listened to the radio, waiting to hear something we loved or for something new to thrill us. Only with records and tapes could we control what we listened to and when. Outside of our bedrooms, we had to take what we could get when it came into earshot, a song on a car radio or being played in a shop. Records meant even more to me than the books I cherished, but I was careless with both. They were to be used rather than looked after, and so the books got creased, torn and stained, the records scratched. A scratch on a record is not something you can get used to. You know exactly where it will come and if the stylus will stick. This was annoying, but to me, records were an admixture of music and vinyl. I expected to hear both. With my old box gramophone, I could stack up singles which would drop one after the other onto the deck. Disco was all about singles, whereas rock was the album, the double album, the concept album, the triple concept album, and not songs, but tracks. Punk brought back the single, but played with every aspect of it. There were double A-sides instead of traditional A and B-sides, and EPs rather than LPs. Singles were as important as LPs, if not more so, and were given cover artwork. 
They'd traditionally come in plain white or discreetly logoed sleeves, but in 1977 came Devo's Satisfaction, featuring the band trussed up in rubber blankets, wearing operating masks. And from Virgin, the Sex Pistols Pretty Vacant, covered in splintered glass and newsprint. Coloured vinyl was introduced, but fell flat as its refusal of light hurt the eyes. The record shop was no more than a corridor squeezed into the high street. The manager, Terry, was a mild man in his thirties who knew so much about music that he didn't need to talk about it. His second-hand section was full of the bands we were just discovering and connecting to what was happening now, and so the organisation of his tiny shop reflected the way in which music adds up and how it moves in its cycles. The disco and prog rock, relegated to the bottom shelf of the second-hand section, would one day be rediscovered, just as I was then following the Sex Pistols back to the New York Dolls and the Velvet Underground, and there they were on Terry's shelves. I bought two Velvet Underground LPs as soon as I found them, and was accosted in the pub a week later by Gary, a boy with new crusted piercings, hair still a bit too long to stand up, a leather jacket, some chains, but cowboy boots and jeans. You bought my velvets, he said, outraged. You sold them. Yeah, but they're mine. Selling records to Terry was like pawning a wedding ring or your grandfather's medals. It raised cash, but the things still belonged to you. You expected them back. Even now, when I play those Velvet Underground LPs, I feel as if I ought to ask Gary's permission first. After class, I'd go to the shop to see what was new and just to hang around, smoking and listening flicking through the records and enjoying the atmosphere they contrived. There were always several people in the shop discussing music. The talk was expert, competitive, savage and infatuated. Often I was the only girl, but I'd yet to think that that had any implications. I knew that there were those for whom music was soundtrack and those of us for whom it was, well, music but didn't notice that most of those who took it seriously were boys. Sophie and Julia each had a few records, but they didn't get upset or excited about bands. I was thrilled by discovery, crushed by disappointment and mortified by any misplaced enthusiasm I'd shown. I declared my allegiance, took a position and always had a view, not noticing that girls were bemused and boys found me boring. Was a girl not supposed to feel so strongly, let alone want so much to possess and know something for her own sake? Thank you. That was great. Um, do you still go to that record? Is that still in existence, even that record shop? That you're no, it's about? not. And in fact, the last time I went to that town, I couldn't even find my way around. The town itself had changed right. so much. <laughs> okay. Do you, do you go regularly record shopping now? Or? No, I find music... The newest way, online, but, yeah. but actually always the oldest way, either through overhearing or recommendation, you know, a friend or my daughter or somebody saying, you'd love this, yeah, or by following my nose, just like I used to in a record shop. I might now read about something online, yeah. click, through, click through to something else. So it's Discover it a different way. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, so today I thought I, it would be fun to gather a few questions from women who I know that work in music and the arts for this podcast. Great. <laughs> um, so first off is a question from Catherine Cantwell from um, Heavenly Recordings. And she was given the importance of music to girls by her boss, Jeff Barrett, last Christmas. 
So Catherine wants to know, in your book, The Importance of Music to Girls is primarily about growing up and experiencing life's rites of passages through music as a girl. How do you think your experience of listening, reading and shopping for music was different to the boys you were friends and grew up with? I think that my experience of listening to and buying music and discovering music was no different to a boy's, but that I was perceived differently doing it. That people didn't believe that I was serious about it or that I had anything interesting to say about a certain mix or production or label or anything. And nor did they particularly want want me to say it. Yeah. Did you have other girls that you were friends with that you would talk about that to? Or was it just male friends that you would have a conversation about that kind of thing with? I, I don't remember having very many conversations about yeah. music. I, I remember playing Diamond Dogs to one of my best girlfriends and being utterly gripped by it and, and babbling on about it and her kind of shrugging and talking about the music she liked to dance to. Yeah. And I can remember sitting for hours listening to boys talk about music and trying to join in occasionally. But I was pretty speechless anyway at that time. So I think, you know, I would read the music press every week and I'd think really hard about things that, you know, so many new things were happening then with, you know, the Lindrum had come in and there were all these kind of digital effects that were new. And I found it really exciting, but I think mostly I was having conversations with myself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's quite interesting because I was kind of in a similar situation. Well, well, I started working in a record shop and it was it was all male. The staff were all male and the predominantly the customer base was all male as well. And they would always want to speak to the male person behind the counter yeah. until one day there's this one guy. I remember he was a regular customer and I must have said something to him where he thought, oh, actually... She she seems to know something. <laughs> and then he only ever wanted to be served by me. Mm. And then that kind of grew into quite a lot of people that only wanted to be served by me. So it, it was kind of empowering. Yeah. But at the same time, it was quite frustrating to begin with yeah. because because I was a girl, they didn't think I knew you anything. You had to prove yourself, yeah. whereas they would assume your male colleague yeah. knew what they were doing. I've had that conversation so many times since I've published this book. Yeah. You know, that, that people approach me a bit warily and think, she doesn't she can't really be serious about music yeah and also it's how you define serious I mean as I said in the piece I just read about records I didn't really look after my records very well and I've still got quite a good collection of records but I I don't have a room and they're not alphabetical yeah and I haven't I haven't kind of been completist about it mm. or anything and I've given quite a lot of records away so I don't have what we might characterized as a sort of masculine attitude about collection and classification and that that kind of complete knowledge of detail yeah yeah okay interesting um Catherine also had another question um uh, her favorite line in the book is when you say I couldn't understand anything without music above all a party I couldn't grasp that at all Catherine feels much the same and wanted to know what your go-to party tune is that gets you on the dance floor. The best of my love. Okay. Yeah, yeah. When I, I remember um, the last time I heard that track uh, without having put it on myself, I may have this wrong, but I think 
it's the track at the opening of that film, that terrible Tom Cruise film, Cocktail. <laughs> and he's um, he, he's going to a party. He walks into a party and they're playing that track and it's the best bit of the film. <laughs> I'm sure the cocktails tasted quite nice. Yeah, but... I may have this completely wrong. Apologies, Mr. Cruise, if I have. <laughs> but, but I think that that's a perfect track because um, the beat is regular enough for, for people who aren't that alert to music to start tapping their toes but it's got such bounce to it yeah and such tightness it's just brilliant the way it, it will get people started yeah. yeah it's my dream to make people party mixes i do it whenever i can oh okay <laughs> i might want what i might have one <laughs> starts um, an events consultant, Kirstine McNeish, who I know you've been working quite closely with in recent months. Um, she mentioned that she listened to your memory tape for musician Hannah Peel 
and wondered if you had one night to pull together a dream collab- music collaboration or band, who would it be with and why? I think there are a number of people who come to mind as being incredibly singular and also very responsive and potentially collaborative, but who it would just be extraordinary to get in one place. And they might be um, Elizabeth Fraser on vocals, Prince kind of doing his thing, the drummer from Cannes, Jackie Liebzeit, who died recently, um, and then maybe Sly and Robbie's rhythm section. You know, when I think about people like that, they who seem to me all, all to be so gifted and yet so restless, you know, always trying to make something new. I could just, uh, yeah, it'd be, it'd be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, on and so you've answered why, haven't you, really, with that? But where would you like to see them all perform as well? Oh, I'm going to throw that one in. <laughs> I don't know, my front room. <laughs> okay. So an, an intimate, private event. No, no. I think it, I think... Um, yeah, the venue that comes to mind because I grew up with it and actually um, was in a little school production in it when I was a kid is the Roundhouse. Right, okay. Yeah. I mean, good venue to put it on. Yeah. Okay, and so on the on that point, do you think maybe it's time to have a song that you um, would like to play for us in relation to that question as well? Let's start with some Cocteau Twins, Cherry Coloured Funk.
have another question from Kirstine. Um, she says, place can be a leveller or a disruptive, disruptive force. Either way, it shapes us in the importance of music to girls and your poetry collection, Minsk. Is that right? Have I said that correct? Um, your move to Essex when young seems to have had a huge impact. How much does a sense of place and belonging still weave through your work? I think she's quite right. Place really has a huge effect on us. I grew up in North London and I was hanging out in Camden Town when I was uh, 10, getting really into music and looking at all those teenagers and the glam rockers and the hippies and you know, hanging out around the roundhouse, imagining what it must be like to go and see Bowie or Bolan, uh, who I was watching on top of the pops. And then all of a sudden, my mum and dad announced we were moving to a village in Essex. And how did you feel? I was really angry. Um, I didn't fit in at school. I was bullied. I was this hippie North London kid. Um, just didn't fit at all. And it took a few years to settle down. But the, the, it was music that actually got me through. And I think that, first of all, with disco and village hall discos and then punk. Um, and punk really felt like, I mean, the punk as in as in not being in the music scene of punk, but being a punk. That mm. really was a provincial state. It was really like this feeling of being outside it, the action and away from the light and everything. And so, so the sort of... I mean, Essex is a really interesting place. At the time, I just felt bored and angry. But when I started to write, I realised how powerfully this landscape had affected my work it's very flat and so you can see a long way but it's also very hard to get anywhere quickly because mm. especially if you're near the coast you're winding in and out of estuaries but it and it's also kind of often the view is 80 percent sky and so light can be very dramatic and as I've got older I've appreciated that more and more I mean that sort of Delighting in the landscape kicks in around 40, I think, like the way gardening does. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I wonder who I would have become and how I would have written if we hadn't left London. I don't know. But it slowed me down. It isolated me. It meant a lot of hanging around. Um, but it also galvanized me as well, I think, to kind of keep going and come back to the city. And um, Yeah. Yeah. How old were you when you came back to the city? Then? 18. Right, OK. Yeah. So whilst we're on the subject of poetry, um, how do you see the difference between writing lyrics and songs and writing poetry? Is there any sense of the two feeding one another? I think they definitely feed each other because um, you know, you're learning about phrase and image and cadence and so on. But I think, I mean, people imagine that if you're writing for music, you kind of empty your words of tension but what I've found to be most fruitful is actually if you provide quite strong but elastic tensions so you give the person setting your words um, something they could stretch and break um, but that has some sort of texture to it it's not mm. just flat flabby words on a page whereas when I write a poem the music is absolutely inherent in the form of that poem and all those things are taken care of within yeah. the words and by the words and the and architecture the of, of that, yeah. Um, and 
Also, uh, writer Diva Harris from Caught by the River website has asked, how does your relationship with music affect your poetry? And or do you listen to music whilst you're writing? And if so, what do you listen to? I can't listen to music at all while I'm writing. Um, I think that loving music and writing poetry probably come from a similar place in me, um, a fascination with tension, actually, um, because rhythm is a form of tension. And I always love music and poetry where you feel a shape which feels predictable is being pushed right to the edge and it almost breaks and collapses and then it doesn't and you know it gets pulled right back. Um, and you see that in all kinds of music, jazz, hip-hop, everything. Yeah. Um, and of course you also see it in poetry that there's a rhythm is established and you think it's going to go a certain way and a good poet will surprise you and tilt it a bit, do mm. something new with it but never give up rhythm and tension completely. Do you prefer writing poetry to novels? Or it, does it come na more naturally to you to write poetry? Or I never sort of decided to write a novel. I yeah. actually was... I'd written a couple of books of poems, and I'd begun a poem which was actually based on two memories, one of when I accidentally jumped through a window and got away with just, just cutting my knees, which was extraordinary. And the other was... Of, actually, it's an Essex memory, and it's of um, trying to cross a ploughed and frozen field at night because we were so desperate to get to a party. We were so bored, right? <laughs> that we that we would. That's, and, that's and in, we just in um, the importance of music. It films, is, yeah, yeah. And it's that thing of kind of falling and stumbling. And anyway, so I was writing a poem based on these memories, these two memories, and suddenly it wasn't about me. It was about this girl, this character. She was fourteen or fifteen, and when I had a character. I started to have a story, and once I had a story, um, well, it took me about 10 years, but I sort of wrote a novel, and the novel is based on the coming of punk to Essex. Yeah. Um, but I didn't want to write directly about life, and I made it almost like a foreign country. I wanted to kind of heighten and fix it, and it was very much about how completely dull England was in the 70s, how insular and dull and how we craved something foreign, something exciting. I mean, I'm a bit worried we're going to head back. Mm. I mean, when people talk about making, <laughs> making Britain great again, that's what it was like. It was really insular and really dull. Well, that mate, this is kind of, maybe it's a tenuous link, but it's kind of going back a little bit. Um, well, quite a lot, actually. Um, the next question is by Helen Castor, who's the medi uh, a medieval historian and author of the book She-Wolves, The Woman Who Re Ruled England Before Elizabeth. So she has asked, um, one of the problems for my medieval queens, and still for women in politics today, is that power was seen as something that naturally belonged in male hands, and women were therefore expected not to rule but to be supported bystanders. Does Lavinia think something similar is true for pop music? that her response to the music she loved was conditioned by the assumption that guitars and microphones, or at least lyric writing pens, belonged in male hands and that the only role available to her was as a fan. <laughs> well, <laughs> OK, uh, I wasn't just a fan. I was in a band and I did make a record and I played gigs. But the interesting part of this is why I didn't talk about that in this book. 
it's complicated. I was writing this book quite a long time ago and I had a strong desire, and I have no idea why, to separate out my love of music from being a musician. And also because I quite quickly discovered I wasn't a musician um, and I wasn't happy about what became of our music. I, uh, I left it out. And it's interesting because... People who write about music are often expected to provide certain credentials. Either they were in a band or they were on a, at the centre of a scene. And so I suppose it was the strongest credential I had for doing this, but I chose to withhold it. And that's absolutely fine. <laughs> um, hopefully we'll hear about it one day. OK, so um, another question. Um, the lovely multi-instrumentalist and super talented Hannah Peel has, has asked... Um, if you could tell us the most memorable, ridiculously rock and roll moment in your career, an outfit or a trip? Actually, that happened a few years ago, and it was it was actually it was just being in a room where Lou Reed asked me to pass him the spoon to the couscous. Wow, <laughs> where were you? <laughs> in a at, room with Lou I Reed. I was at someone's house and. Laurie Anderson was there because she it was celebrating a project of hers and he was with her. And I was next to him by the bowl of couscous. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting when you... I mean, music's one of those things, isn't it? You, you do feel completely in awe, however old you get and experienced you become, of those people who who got you through that time and who who showed you some some possibility and you know he was certainly one of those for me yeah that's i mean you know you don't get Lou Reed off I didn't you, say so. anything to him <laughs> did you pass him the couscous I though? just passed him the couscous okay good so with that then what song reminds you of that time one of the songs that would be on my desert island list mm -hmm. is what goes on and just never fails to make me happy and never fails to make me dance.
I think there are two songs that capture the two extremes of those years of growing up for me. And one is pop group Snow Girl and Once I Got Over my embarrassment of still loving disco. I've never stopped listening to Earth, Wind and Fire's The Way of the World. Okay, let's listen to those.
thank you very much, Lavinia. It's been a pleasure to interview you today and I hope uh, you enjoyed it as much as I did. I did very much. Thank you very much. Just to let all of the listeners out there know that we have got signed copies of The Importance of Music to Girls, which is in its 10th anniversary this year. Um, You can buy online at roughtrade.com. Thank you. Thanks, Lavinia. Rough Trade Radio. Electric guest, plural. Available in store and online at roughtrade.com. I can't